My name is uh, Dr. Greg Fraser. I teach at the Masters University. I'm a professor of history and political studies as well as the dean of the School of Humanities there. Um, and um, why am I here? <laughs> Some of you might be wondering. You might wonder more later. But um, <laughs> several years ago, Dr. MacArthur came to my office after having read my book on the religious beliefs of America's founders, this one here. He expressed a desire to have everyone at Grace Community hear my presentation on the subject. As he left my office, he asked for a copy of the handout that you just got when you came in, or you can get later if you didn't already. They're in the back, I think. Um, several fellowship groups allowed me to make the presentation that I'm about to do, although I've changed it a little bit. Um, he also arranged for me to do a seminar in the Shepherds Conference that year. Um, so that's how much he approves of it. I'm, I'm laying this out because for a lot of you, that's what matters. Um, he also arranged for, uh, as I said, arranged for me to do a seminar in the Shepherds Conference, and he bought a copy of my book for every member of the university's board of directors. Um, for those of you who like Al Mohler, he had me on his show, and he then endorsed my book and, and, and all of his various, I don't know, Twitters and all those things. I don't do any of those things. I don't know what they are, but those social media things. Mark Dever said that my book was historical exegesis, and he promoted it to all of his people um, and his things for about two years. So um, because there are so many people now who are relatively new to Grace Church, and John wanted everybody to hear it, I thought it was time to do the presentation again. So um, if you've heard it before, it's pretty much the same thing, although you may not have heard part two, which is next week. I haven't done part two as much. We'll talk about that at the end. Um, and this is basically what we're going to talk about today. Uh, let, me, let me start with this. First, I wore blue and red. I, I have underwear that's white, so I'm, 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 for those of you for that, whom that matters, red, white, and blue, I feel very blessed to have been born in and to live in the United States. I thank the Lord every night in my prayers that I live in the United States of America. I think that's a great blessing. I believe it's the greatest and best country in the history of the world with the best political system ever devised by man. I would not want to live in any other country on earth. Apologies to those of you who are from other countries or are going to them. Um, but the United States is not perfect. It was created by and is run by fallen people, and therefore it is flawed. And so, and it started out that way. It started out created by and run by fallen people. And that's what we want to talk about today. So regarding religion and the American founding, just to lay it out to, to begin with, and then we'll look at uh, what we need to see today. My contention is that both the right and the left are wrong about the Founding Fathers and their religious beliefs. And that was the reason I wrote the book. The left says that most of the founders were deists or rank secularists who intended to completely separate religion from the public square to create a wall of separation between church and state. All of that is wrong. 
In fact, to get to a single deist, you have to go way down the list of founding fathers. You have to get down into the 30s or 40s of of rankings of founding fathers, or maybe 50s even, I would say about 100, to get to a deist among the founding fathers. There were a few. I could name two or three, but there weren't very many deists among the founding fathers. The right says that most of the founders were Christians who based the founding documents on the Bible and intended to create a Christian nation. That is also false. It is as false as the other claim. There were Christians among the founding fathers. There were more Christians than there were deists, but again, there were virtually no deists. There were more Christians among the founding fathers. There were some Christians among the founding fathers. But what we're going to look at today is the ones that I call the key founders, those who were most influential on the founding documents and on putting the system into place and into effect. Um, you think about it this way. When you're in a room, uh, let's say a fellowship group, uh, you're attending and you're in the room, but most of you don't have much influence over what goes on, Right? Uh, or if you're in a corporation and you meet in a boardroom and, there's, and the bigwigs are there, you're there, but you don't have much influence on what happens. There were a lot of founding fathers who didn't have a whole lot of influence. They were there. They occasionally spoke up in the, in the Constitutional Convention. Uh, they voted on things, but they weren't really the movers and the drivers. You know that in any organization or any place, you have drivers and movers, Okay, that, that, are, that are the ones that make things happen. Those are the people that I focused on in my study. I identified eight key founders who we're going to note in a moment. And um, my determination is that none of those eight was a believer. Uh, none of those eight was a Christian. We just had a very good description of what a Christian is if you were in the first service. None of these guys would have gotten even close to that because they wouldn't have actually met up with probably any of the five of the principles that were laid out this morning. So my desire for you today, and you say, okay, dude, like, who are you, man? Well, I already told you who I am. I have a PhD, and I'm IT, blah, blah, okay, so what? Um, My desire is for you to see what they themselves said that they believe. So you don't have to take my word for it. So this is going to be a PowerPoint presentation of looking at what they themselves said they believed. So if you have a beef with it, your beef is with them, (laughs) not with me. All I'm doing is showing you what they said. Okay. Now, I emphasize what they said in private. Everybody who does a book has assumptions. Most people don't give you the assumptions. They don't tell you what their assumptions are. But I do in my first chapter. I lay out all my assumptions. Okay? And one of my primary assumptions is that people tell you, especially politicians, tell you more of what they really believe by what they say in private than what they say publicly. They'll say one thing publicly to get approval and so forth and to appeal to the audience because they want votes. But what do they say in private when they don't think anybody else will see it? What do they say in their personal correspondence? What do they say in their journal, in their diary? Those are the things that I'm basing um, things on, is what they said in private. 
rather than public pronouncements made for political purposes. One sees what someone really believes and what they say privately, and they don't expect the public to see. At least that's my assumption. I apologize in advance that we will move very quickly um, because I have a lot of ground to cover and I want to leave room at the end for questions, uh, preferably not not for throwing of rotten fruit, but uh, for questions at least at the end. So let's look at the religious beliefs of key American founders. And by the way, let me just point this out. When you hear people say, or you see a presentation, they say, the founding fathers believed, blah, blah, blah. The founding fathers said, blah, blah, blah. Unless they're talking about the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, they can't make that statement because the founding fathers were individual people. They were not just a conglomeration that all believed the same things and all said the same things, just like any other group. And so I'm isolating key American founders, and when I talk about the founders, I'm talking about these key founders. Now, it's also true of a lot of the other founders as well, but for my purposes, I'm talking about the key American founders, okay? Uh, All right. Somehow this wasn't... It's not working. It's going the wrong direction. Uh, Can you start it over, Jason? Because no matter which way... Oh, wait. Here we go. I I, I got it. I got it. It didn't come up right away, so I goofed. We have one honest man in the group. (laughs) All right. Again, for those of you who need it, um, this is a quote from Dr. MacArthur in a thing that he did called Christian in Politics. He quoted another man who said this, Rather than acting as resident aliens of a heavenly kingdom, too often we sound and act like resident apologists for a Christian America. Unless we reject the false reliance on the illusion of Christian America... Evangelicalism will continue to distort the gospel and thwart a genuine biblical identity. This is something Dr. MacArthur quoted in one of his things, and this is why he came to talk to me, because he agrees with me on this issue. For whatever that's worth. All right. Now, who are the key American founders? Who am I talking about? I'm talking about those who are most responsible for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and for putting the Constitution into effect. The three primary authors of the Declaration of Independence, and these, why these founding documents? Because these are the ideas on which this country is founded. These are the ideas on which the country is founded, and religious beliefs are ideas, and they influence ideas. What you believe in your uh, religious thought is what influences your ideas, Okay? So Thomas Jefferson, of course, famously was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. However, John Adams and Benjamin Franklin were also on the committee with him, and they also made changes with him on that. For the Constitution, James Madison is generally referred to as the father of the Constitution. By the way, I would argue with that, but we'll get there in a minute. But nonetheless, he did have a significant influence on the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton had a significant influence on the Constitution and more so an influence on George Washington. 
George Washington, of course, is the 500-pound gorilla in the room. Everybody on both sides of this argument desperately wants to have George Washington on their side, and so we'll talk about him a little bit later. He's the one who, of course, uh, presided, I don't know if you knew this, the Constitutional Convention. He was the presiding officer. He's the guy with the gavel sitting up front running things, although he did step down once to make one comment and then went back. Uh, but mostly he just presided over. But he is, of course, the one who is going to put all of this into effect and has to be on board with it. Then you have two names you've never heard, Governor Morris and James Wilson. Now, this is Governor is a name. It's not his position. He wasn't a governor. His name is Governor, which is the French word for governor, but nonetheless, it's his name. And if you were going to pick a father of the Constitution, it really should be Governor Morris. And James Madison said so himself. Uh, Governor Morris spoke more than anyone else at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, He influenced a number of things. He was the chairman of the Committee on Style, which actually wrote the Constitution. And if you see an old copy of the Constitution, if you go to Washington, D.C., and you look in the National Archives, you see the Constitution, it's his handwriting that you see. He literally wrote the Constitution, and he and his committee chose the wording and so forth, although in conjunction with the rest of the uh, convention. And then James Wilson, another very influential framer, particularly influential on the presidency, uh, also in the first Supreme Court. And so these are uh, the eight individuals that I'm talking about when I say the founders. I'm talking about these key eight individuals, the movers and shakers, the ones who were responsible for the ideas on which the country was founded. All right, so let's get into it because I already took too much time for this. All right. Let's look, first of all, at John Adams. Now, both sides claim John Adams, but in particular, the Christian America people claim John Adams because they think it's a no-brainer, and therefore, uh, and, and therefore they, they uh, put a lot of stock in John Adams. He was a member of the Declaration Drafting Committee. Of course, he was second president of the United States, first vice president. So let's take a look at what John Adams believed. Now, why did the Christian America people put a lot of stock in this and think it's a no-brainer because he was a congregationalist. Those of you who know old denominational things, a congregationalist means that he was in a Reformed church, a church that was based on Reformed theology, Calvinist, etc. And Adams was a lifelong member of the congregationalist church. The problem is, as we're going to see later, that his particular congregationalist church did not stay true to reform theology. Um, Not even by the time Adams was in college, they had already rejected the the gospel and Christianity. Um, So it's not as simple. And one of the problems that we run into in this whole discussion is what the Christian American people, those who promote the Christian American idea, they rely on on denominational affiliations denominational affiliation. So if someone that goes to a congregationalist church, he's a Christian. Now, first of all, not everybody who goes to Grace Community Church is a Christian, much less all of the people who are Baptists or Presbyterians or some other denomination, right? Uh, you have to get at what an individual believes. Being part of a denomination doesn't make you anything other than an attendee. And so what did John Adams believe? All right, first of all, he referred to the deity of Jesus Christ and his satisfaction for the sins of man as absurdity. Now, this, by the way, 
there's also another thing. When, when I deal with John Adams and people come back at me, what, what they are taught is that John Adams turned bad after he leave the president's, left the presidency, that late in life he turned and, and rejected Christianity. Well, first of all, you and I don't believe that you can be saved and then lose your salvation, first of all. But aside from that, this is 1756 when John Adams was in college. This is not late in life. This is not after he left the presidency. This is his diary as a young man. He believed that the, the concept of the deity of Christ was an absurdity, along with his satisfaction for the sins of man, in other words, the atonement. He later said, the Pythagorean, as well as the Platonic philosophers, probably concurred in the fabrication of the Christian trinity. Now, Pythagoras, some of you have been out of school a long time, some of you not so much, but what's Pythagoras known for? Dealing with what? What kind of math? Triangles, right? The Pythagorean theorem, triangles. That's why he chooses Pythagoras here, because it's three, the triangle, three sides. So he says, the Pythagorean, as well as Platonic philosophers, that's Plato, probably concurred in fabricating the Christian trinity. He doesn't believe in the trinity. How, how much does he not believe in the trinity? This is the most outrageous thing I've encountered in 35 years of investigating this and, and researching this. He says this to Thomas Jefferson, Had you and I been 40 days with Moses on Mount Sinai and admitted to behold the divine Shekinah, in other words, the glory of God, and there told that one was three and three one, we might not have had the courage to deny it, but we could not have believed it. We could not have believed the doctrine. We should be more likely to say in our hearts, whatever we might say with our lips, This is chance, there is no God, no truth, this is all delusion, fiction, a lie, or it is all chance. John Adams said, if God himself on Mount Sinai told him that the Trinity was true, he still wouldn't have believed it. That's how vehemently and adamantly he opposed the Trinity, the deity of Christ. What about the basis of salvation? An incarnate God, an eternal, self-existent, omnipresent, omniscient author of this stupendous universe suffering on a cross, my soul starts with horror at the idea, and it has stupefied the Christian world. It has been the source of almost all the corruptions of Christianity. Jesus, as God, coming to the earth in the incarnation and sacrificing himself on the cross on our behalf, such as we sang about this morning, that to him is, has stupefied the Christian world and has been the source of almost all the corruptions of Christianity. Where, this term, corruptions of Christianity, we're going to bump into with a couple of other guys as well. Where does it come from? There was a guy named Joseph Priestley. If you were a science major, you might know who he is. Uh, uh, in the science world, he is generally credited with discovering oxygen, He called it something else, but nonetheless, uh, he's generally credited with that. But he was also an itinerant preacher, and he wrote a multi-volume work on the history of the corruptions of Christianity. 
In the first volume of corruption, and then he has you know, section headings of what are the corruptions of Christianity. It starts with uh, original sin, then it goes to the deity of Christ, it goes to the atonement, it goes through basically the Grace Community Church doctrinal statement. And those things are corruptions of Christianity. What is real Christianity for Priestley, for Adams, and the rest of these guys? The moral teachings of Jesus. The moral teachings of Jesus. And when they do talk about Christianity, that's what they mean. And this is another thing that's important. When you listen to someone give a presentation and they quote these guys talking about Christianity and so forth, what did they mean when they said Christianity? It's disingenuous to, take, to go to an audience like this who has an understanding of Christianity and say that these guys believe this, 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 and this because they use the word Christianity when that isn't what they meant by it. Adams doesn't mean the deity of Christ. He doesn't mean the atonement. He doesn't mean any of the stuff that we talk about when we talk about Christianity. He doesn't mean an incarnate God suffering on a cross on our behalf. And just to show that he didn't believe in the Trinity, he proudly declared himself a Unitarian, which is someone who doesn't believe in the Trinity. We Unitarians, one of whom I have had the honor to be for more than 60 years. Notice he says for more than 60 years. This is not something he discovered late in life. This goes back to 1856. 60 years was 1856, which was the previous quote that I gave you. He said, 65 years ago, my own minister, the Reverend Samuel Bryant, and others were Unitarians, his own minister at that congregational church. And if you go to the website of that church, you will find the date that they turned Unitarian, and it is back then. What does he think about the Bible? Philosophy, which is a result of reason, is the first, the original revelation of the creator to his creature, man. No subsequent revelation supported by prophecies or miracles can supersede it. What's subsequent revelation supported by prophecies and miracles? That's the Bible. So the Bible can't supersede philosophy, the result of reason. I'm going to tell you later, I'll say it now, and then you can... We'll get back to it later. I invented a term for what these guys' religious beliefs were. That's what my book is about. Uh, they are theistic rationalists. They're theistic rationalists. It's actually on the back of the handout that I handed to you, what a theistic rationalist believes. What the theistic rationalists did was they were raised in, a, a, in an area of Christendom, that is, a general Christian influence. They were raised under a general Christian influence, and then they were educated in Enlightenment rationalism, and they took elements from Christianity and elements from Enlightenment rationalism and created their own religious belief system based on what they thought was reasonable, rational. So they discarded what they thought was irrational um, in Christianity and discarded what they thought was irrational in Enlightenment thought, which they thought some of that was irrational as well. And they came up with their own belief system. Okay, So here he's talking about the fact that the Bible can't supersede philosophy, which is the result of reason. He said, though, the Bible is the most Republican book in the world, and therefore I will still revere it. Some of you might say that. 
I hope not. Uh, but he doesn't mean the Republican Party here, which didn't exist. Uh, he means the Republican form of government, that the Bible fit well with a Republican form of government, and therefore, therefore, he will still revere it for that reason. What about theology? The preamble to the laws of Zeleucus, which was supposedly handed down from Athena, the Greek goddess, is as orthodox as Christian theology as Priestley's. That's Joseph Priestley, the guy I mentioned before, and that's the guy with whom Adams identified. So he thinks that the preamble to the laws of Zeleucus, ancient Greek pagan religion, is as orthodox theologically as Christian theology. Where is to be found theology more orthodox or philosophy more profound than in the introduction to the Shastra? That's a Hindu text. These doctrines, sublime if ever there were any sublime, Pythagoras learned in India and taught them to Zeleucus and his other disciples, all ended in heaven if they became virtuous. How do you get to heaven for the theistic rationalists? Be good. Be good. Be a good person. Be virtuous. That's the road to heaven. Actually, for most of them, ultimately, everybody's going to get there. But if you want to go directly to heaven, that's what you need to do, is be good. Be a good person. All these guys went to heaven. Hindus, Greek pagans, doesn't matter. He said, my religion is founded upon the love of God and my neighbor in the duty of doing no wrong, but all the good I can. That's what it's about. I believe, too, in a future state of rewards and punishments, but not eternal. They believed, some of them, some of them didn't, they believed in hell, but not eternal. They believed that uh, beyond the grave, if you, were, if you were good in this life, you went straight to heaven. If you were bad, you went somewhere where Jesus worked on you and he made you worthy to go to heaven. It's sort of like the Catholic um, purgatory. Yeah, it's essentially the same idea. Except I don't think the Catholics believe everybody gets the chance to go to I'm not, I don't know. But he said, I believe that all good men are Christians. So that's what he means when he talks about Christianity. He said... You want to get down to it. Placing all religion in grace and its offspring faith is anti-Christianity. Our church is misnamed for John Adams. It should be anti-Christianity community church. My religion, you know, is not, this is a letter to his wife. My religion, you know, is not exactly conformable to that of the greatest part of the Christian world. It excludes superstition. And by superstition, he explains that it's miracles and those types of things. All right, so that's John Adams, the one that everybody's confident about. Then we get to Thomas Jefferson, who's always been a controversial figure, but lately some of the Christian American people have written books to try and resurrect Thomas Jefferson as well. He's, of course, the primary author of the Declaration, so let's look a little bit at Thomas Jefferson. And by the way, 
Jefferson and Adams were good buddies until they ran for president against each other and they got into and they separated for a number of years. But late in life, they got back together. And they, there's a, they did a whole lot of corresponding, a lot of letters. Uh, I have a, a whole book, multi-volume book of their letters and so forth. And, and they agreed with one another. If I had more time, I'd throw this up here. They agreed with one another that they believed essentially the same things. Jefferson said, what does he say about the Trinity? The metaphysical insanities of Athanasius of Loyola and of Calvin are, to my understanding, merely relapses into polytheism. For, for Jefferson, the Trinity is polytheism. It's believing in three gods. Athanasius, he identifies him because he's the one who first wrote the Trinitarian Creed. When we shall have done away the incomprehensible jargon of the Trinitarian arithmetic that three are one and one is three, then we'll be able to advance and move along and blah, 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 blah. We'll be able to progress once we get rid of this silliness. The hocus-pocus phantasm of a god like another Cerberus with one body and three heads. That's what he thinks of the Trinity. Uh, those of you who don't know ancient Greek mythology, the Cerberus was a hound, a dog, that at the gates of hell with three heads to catch everybody uh, and guarded the gates of hell and whatnot. And so that's why he talks about a Cerberus with one body and three heads. To him, that's what the Trinity is. It's, it's myth. It's a myth. It's a hocus-pocus phantasm. What about the virgin birth? The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Now we're going to Roman mythology. In Roman mythology, um, Minerva is the daughter of Jupiter, but Jupiter's upset when Juno, his wife, is pregnant. He doesn't want to have a child, so he swallows his wife. And then Minerva is persistent, and so she is born and, and breaks her way out of the head of Jupiter. For, Je for Jefferson, that's the same category of the virgin birth. Sounds just like the biblical account. It's pretty wild and crazy like that, right? Now, Back to the corruptions idea. To the corruptions of Christianity, I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I am a Christian in the only sense in which he wished anyone to be, sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all others, ascribing to himself every human excellence and believing he never claimed any other. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, the corruptions of Christianity. That's, again, a reference to Priestley's notion. So when he says, to the corruptions of Christianity, I'm opposed, that's the grace doctrinal statement. Okay? Those are the corruptions of Christianity. Then he says, I am a Christian. Now, the Christian America people love ellipses. I call one of them the king of ellipses because he can't make any of his arguments without ellipses. Ellipses are the little dot, dot, dot that you put when you cut something out, okay? I've had some on some of my slides. It's perfectly fine to use ellipses. That's a perfectly good tool. It's, there's no problem with it, as long as you follow the fundamental rule, which is 
you don't change the meaning of the statement by ellipses, by what you cut out. So what, the, what is often done with Jefferson is the, this quote, I am a Christian, dot, 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 will be, see, Jefferson was a Christian. Well, he, he said he was a Christian, and then he, then he said what he meant by it, which isn't what we mean by it, and was, isn't what the Bible means by it. Um, ascribing to himself or be human excellence. In other words, Jesus was just a man. And believing that he never claimed any other. Now, it was easy for Jefferson to say that Jesus didn't claim to be God because Jefferson produced his own version of the Bible and he cut out all the verses in which Jesus claimed to be God. You can still buy it today. I wouldn't. But it's called the Jefferson Bible today. That isn't what he called it. But it's called the Jefferson Bible. It's still in print. And what he did literally was take the Bible, the New Testament, and... Um, okay, I, I won't say a pair of scissors because there's a guy that, that trolls me, that criticizes me because he obviously did it with a straight razor. Okay, a straight razor, I don't care. The point is, he cut out verses, all the verses that have anything supernatural, any, any miracles or anything supernatural, and the verses in which Jesus claimed to be God, clearly. So clearly that what did they, the Jews try to do? They tried to kill him. Right? They said he's claiming to be God, and they, they took him out and wanted to throw him off a cliff in one of the cases, and so on and so forth. So they understood he was claiming to be God. Anyway, Jefferson created his own version and then literally pasted it back together. I have photocopies of the whole thing. You can see how he pasted it all back together uh, and created his own version of the New Testament. We'll see what he thinks of the New Testament in a minute. Um, so that's, what, that's why he can say he never claimed to be God, because in my version he didn't. He lists in a letter to his uh, favorite nephew a number of artificial systems invented by ultra-Christian sects that are unauthorized by a single word ever uttered by Jesus. So what are the artificial systems invented by ultra-Christian sects that Jesus did not believe? Including... The Immaculate Conception of Jesus, that's the virgin birth, his deity, the creation of the world by him, his miraculous powers, his resurrection and visible ascension, the Trinity, original sin, atonement, regeneration, election, and so on. In other words, again, the Grace Community Doctrinal Statement. And I, I, I was wrong. I forgot incorrectly. William Short is not his nephew. He wrote a lot of the stuff to his nephew. All right. So these are, according to Jefferson, artificial systems that were imposed on Christianity. He and the others believed that there were people who wanted to be priests and they wanted to have offices, and so they had to create some type of religious system in order to, out of Jesus' teachings, in order to get people to come to them and rely upon them and pay them money. Uh, that was their view. He says, my fundamental principle in terms of salvation, my fundamental principle would be the reverse of Calvin's, that we are to be saved by our good works, which are within our power, and not by our faith, which is not within our power. At least he recognized that faith is not within our power. So Dr. Lawson would be pleased on that one. Um, but this is, again, good works, good works. 
Being a good person, that's what matters. It has nothing to do with Christ or his, sal- or his atonement on our behalf. This, is, this one I know is to his uh, favorite nephew. Read the Bible then as you would read Livy or Tacitus. Those are Roman historians. Your own reason is the only oracle given you by heaven. Reason. Regarding the writers of the New Testament, other than the Gospels, he had some respect for the Gospels, but the rest of the New Testament, he said, these pseudo-evangelists pretended to inspiration. So the rest of the New Testament, besides the Gospels, in fact, he has words to say about it. He refers to the New Testament, other than the Gospels, as a dunghill. That was his favorite term for the rest of the New Testament, a dunghill, a pile of feces. What about the Apostle Paul? Of this band of dupes and imposters, Paul was the great Corypheus, or leader of the chorus, and the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul starts the corruptions of Jesus. What about who goes to heaven? There is not a Quaker or a Baptist, a Presbyterian or an Episcopalian, a Catholic or a Protestant in heaven. On entering that gate, we leave those badges of schism behind and find ourselves united in those principles only in which God has united us all. Let us not be uneasy then about the different roads we may pursue to that our last abode, but let us be happy in the hope that by these different paths we shall all meet in the end. It's another standard thing of theistic rationalists. There are multiple roads to heaven because the bottom line is to be good. And you can be good through a lot of different religions. Most religions teach you to be good. And this, by the way, is why they talked about in the Constitution religion and not Christianity when they gave freedom of religion and whatnot. They didn't specify Christianity because all religions teach you to be good. And we're going to see later the importance of morality uh, for a free society. But uh, all these people, it's the principles in which God has united us all. And all these different paths are all fine. We'll, we'll all meet in the end. I believe that he who steadily observes those moral precepts in which all religions concur will never be questioned at the gates of heaven as to the dogmas in which they all differ. Adams and Jefferson, in particular, spent a lot of time studying other religions. They were very familiar with other religions in the world. Uh, And they came to the conclusion that they're all okay, it doesn't matter. And this, by the way, is the real reason why we have the First Amendment. Because they they didn't have a dog in the race in terms of particular religious systems. And so why not allow freedom of religion and let everybody believe whatever they want? Because everybody, it's okay, they're all gonna be good. It's going to teach the morality. We'll all meet in the end. It doesn't matter. So, Benjamin Franklin, interesting character. Um, also a member of the Declaration Drafting Committee. Various false claims are made about Benjamin Franklin, which we might deal with next week. Um, but here is the saddest comment that I got, uh, that I found in 35 years of researching this. Uh, John Adams' comment earlier was the most outrageous. This one is the saddest. This is written by Franklin just a few months before he died. 
he was asked by a pastor what he thought specifically of Jesus. And he said this, As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. But I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. You can see the corruptions issue. And I have doubts as to his divinity, his deity. Though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it, and think it needless to busy myself with it now when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble, which he did. I see no harm, however, in its being believed if the belief has the good consequences of making his doctrines more respected and better observed. Wow. I'm going to die soon and find out firsthand whether Jesus is God or not, so why bother studying it? By the way, he starts out Jesus of Nazareth. They often refer to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because that emphasizes his humanity. Um, And then when he says in the middle there, I have doubts as to his divinity. You need to understand 18th century language. In the 18th century, when people were polite in dealing with people they disagreed with, if you disagreed with someone that you respected and you wanted to be polite, you wouldn't say you disagreed with him. You would say, I have doubts as to your position. So when this pastor who believes in the Trinity asks him, he says, I have doubts as to his divinity. That doesn't mean it's in question for him. He doesn't believe in the deity of Christ. And notice he talks about corrupting changes, the corruptions that we talked about before. He said, all sects have experienced my goodwill in assisting them, and as I have never opposed any of their doctrines, I hope to go out of the world in peace with them all. Franklin was famous for giving to all the churches in Philadelphia. He, he tithed or gave to all the churches in Philadelphia, no matter what, and a new church would come in, he would give to it as well. And he also was behind a movement to build a church in Philadelphia that, didn't, that wasn't tied to any denomination, that was just an open church which anyone could preach. And he did that in order to make a place for Joseph Priestley to come and preach. Now, the guy that we talked about before on the corruptions issue. Uh, so Frank, that's why he says, all sects have experienced my goodwill in assisting them. He's been, he gave money to all of the various churches. He's trying, I view Franklin to a large extent as Japanese. He's trying to cover all the bases. You ever talk to somebody who's a missionary in Japan and they preach Christ, they preach Christ, and they think somebody's come around and then they see that they just add Jesus as another statue in their list of statues uh, because they're trying to cover all the bases. And that's what Franklin was trying to do. All right, so let's play a little game. Identify the Christian president. (laughs) A or B? President A was a Baptist, President B, Episcopalian. President A claimed to be a Christian. President B never claimed to be a Christian. President A took communion publicly. President B refused to take communion and was publicly chastised by his own minister for refusing to take communion. President A had an advisory council of Christians, it should be, 
Um, and P President B had his advisors denied the fundamentals. Uh, it should be Advisory Council of Evangelical Ministers in A, and B should be advisors denied the fundamentals of Christianity. But anyway, hopefully you can get the idea. So, President A, Bill Clinton. President B, George Washington. Bill Clinton has better bona fides to be a Christian than George Washington. So let's address the 500-pound gorilla in the room, George Washington. Unlike Adams, and even Jefferson, we saw where Jefferson claimed to be a Christian, right? He said, I'm a Christian in the only way that Jesus wanted someone to be. Washington never claimed to be a Christian. We have 20,000 pages of his writings. He never claimed to be a Christian. Nor did he ever claim to have a relationship with Jesus or to have been converted. In fact, in, in 1797, a group of clergymen tried to get him to affirm whether he was a Christian or not. They devised a scheme, a plan. But they were frustrated when Washington refused to do so, and one of them said, the old fox was too cunning for us. So even when a group of clergymen tried to get him to say one way or the other, he wouldn't do it. He never took communion. After being publicly chastised for his bad example, he then never again attended a, a sacrament Sunday. Who, who says this? According to his granddaughter, Nellie Custis, who lived with the, with the Washingtons, according to Bishop William White, who was the overseer of the local churches, and according to Dr. James Abercrombie, who was the assistant rector of Washington's church and the one who chastised him. So Abercrombie chastised Washington by name from the pulpit for, for not attending sacrament Sundays. What happened was they would have a service, and then they would say, okay, if you're staying for communion, stay. If not, leave. Mrs. Washington would stay for communion, but George would leave. And so Abercrombie, who, by the way, I want to meet in heaven, chastised Washington for his bad example. Washington wrote him a very interesting letter in which he said, you are quite right, I have been a terrible example of this, it won't happen again. And that didn't mean I'll start taking communion, it was I just won't go on Sacrament Sunday. He spoke of Christians in the third person. He said, being no bigot myself to any mode of worship, I am disposed to indulge the professors of Christianity that road to heaven, which to them shall seem the most direct, plainest, easiest, and least liable to exception. All right, let's break this down a little bit. First of all, the word bigot here. Again, you have to know 18th century language. A bigot then didn't mean that you were a racist. A bigot, and what it really means just in the English language in general, a bigot means someone who is devoted to some idea, to some belief. Someone who believes something particular. That's a bigot. So you're bigots. You believe something particular. All right? So, he, so what he's saying is, I don't believe anything particular. I, I'm, I'm a bigot to any mode of worship. I don't, I don't prefer any particular mode of worship or any, any particular religion. But I am disposed to indulge the professors of Christianity. It doesn't mean people like me who's a professor. He means people who profess. Professors of Christianity are people who profess Christianity. So he's talking about you. He's, he's disposed to indulge you who profess Christianity 
the road to heaven, which to you seems the most direct, plainest, easiest, and least liable to exception. This is back to the roads to heaven notion. Okay? And if you want to believe Christianity and take that road to heaven, plenty good. But that's not me. I'm not, I'm not a bigot to any mode of worship. I don't have any particular belief. You studiously avoided mentioning the name of Jesus. In 20,000 plus pages of his writings, there's only one reference to Jesus, Jesus Christ, or Christ, and that is not in his handwriting and not accepted as his by the Smithsonian or the Washington Papers Project. It was written by an aide of his. He had a couple of aides who were Christians, and one of them used to put some Christian language into some of his speeches and whatnot, and then Washington would go in and scratch it out, um, as as we're going to see in just a moment. Washington always used God words. This is huge with theistic rationalists. They use God words. They use various terms for God that aren't specific, so no one can pin you down to any particular belief. Things like author and and, uh, uh, supreme judge and governor of the universe and so on and so forth. Uh, Almighty hand. Uh, These are God words. They're not biblical terms. They're not uh, terms that come from the Bible or any particular religious belief. They are generalized terms for God. For example, in a speech to Indian leaders, which was written by that clerk, he crossed out the word God and substituted the great spirit above because that's their concept of God and their concept of God is just as good as anybody else's. His use of God words and his belief that all roads lead to God are best understood when one remembers that Washington was an enthusiastic Freemason. Now, first of all, nobody come up here, please, afterwards and try and convince me that, the, that America was founded as a Freemason conspiracy. It's not true. I've, I've studied it. You won't convince me. Leave me alone about the dollar bill and whatnot. <laughs> it, it's just not going to happen. So just save you and I both the time. Um, but two of the founders were enthusiastic Freemasons, Washington and Franklin. Um, and those who say, as the Christian American people do, well, yes, Washington technically was a Freemason, but he never attended the meetings and he didn't really, he didn't really believe it and whatnot, he laid the, the cornerstone of the Capitol building in a Masonic apron with a Masonic trowel. The Capitol building where Congress sits, he laid the cornerstone of that building when, it, when they first started building it. He did it uh, as, a, as a Mason. Um, he was, he, his favorite portrait of himself is in his Masonic regalia, which you see uh, in a lot of American history textbooks and whatnot. And there is a George Washington Masonic Memorial, uh, including him being the chair of the Alexandria Lodge. He was the master of the Alexandria, Virginia Lodge. So he was a Freemason. um, And if you understand Freemasonry, Freemasonry holds to a unitary supreme being, the so-called great architect of the universe, God word, denies Christ's unique saviorship and atonement, reduces religion to a moralistic observance of allegedly common ethical principles, all meet together 
and pray and worship together to the same one and only indivisible God whom all religions acknowledge and venerate. That's what Freemasonry believes. That's what these guys believe. They weren't all Freemasons, but it fit well with what they believed. Did Washington believe what he believed because he's a Freemason, or did he adopt Freemasonry because he believed that? I don't know. Uh, I can't tell you. But they fit well together one way or the other. He also steadfastly refused to kneel in prayer. And some of you are saying, so? I don't kneel in prayer. We don't have kneeling benches in Grace Community Church. No, but they did in his church, and that was the expected practice, to kneel in prayer. They had kneeling benches. They had a little thing that you pulled out to kneel for prayer. And while everybody else was kneeling in prayer, Washington was standing. That was a scandal. It was, he didn't fit the custom. Okay, okay, so what, why are you making it? Because one of the evidences of Washington being a Christian is this famous portrait, Right? of him kneeling in the snows of Valley Forge. Now, the man who was supposed to have found Washington kneeling in prayer at Valley Forge, a farmer named Isaac Potts, was nowhere near Valley Forge in 1777. He moved there near the end of the war. That's by his own account. The guy who was identified as the one who saw Washington kneeling in prayer says, hey, I didn't even live there then. I didn't move there until the end of the war. So where did this come from? A lot of the stuff about Washington comes from a hagiography of Washington that was written when he died. You know what a hagiography is as opposed to a biography? A biography is a, is a book about somebody's life. A hagiography is a book about somebody's life that's effusively praising and makes up things and so forth in order to make them just the greatest thing since sliced bread. Okay? Um, and a guy named... Mason Locke Weems, or Parson Weems, as he liked to be called. I'm not sure if he was a parson, but nonetheless, he liked to be called that. Wrote a book called The Life of Washington right after Washington died. And it's the, it's the origin of a lot of stuff. What's the most famous story about Washington's childhood? The cherry tree. The cherry tree. Yeah, Mason Locke Weems made that up. That's where that came from. Throwing a dollar across the Potomac. I'm glad you mentioned that. My wife's going to... She's, she's smiling. So... When my wife and I visited Mount Vernon, I made sure, when I knew I was going to Washington, D.C. to speak at a conference, and so I carried a silver dollar with me. And we went to Mount Vernon, we, stand on, we stood on, the, on the, 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 the shore of the Potomac River right in front of his house, and I got ready to throw the silver dollar, and my wife took a photograph of it, to see if I could throw it a mile Because that's how wide the Potomac is. That was made up by Mason Locke Weems. It was based on a true story. When he was a young man, he and another guy were competing for the affections of a young lady. And he decided he could impress the young lady. He bet the other guy that he could skip a rock across the Rappahannock River, which was about 100 yards across. So he bet that he could skip a rock across the Rappahannock and Mason Locke Weems made that throwing a silver dollar across the Potomac. When we were there also, we went up to the bedroom where Washington died, and people are looking solemnly at the bed where he died and so forth, and I'm looking at the ceiling. My wife said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm just admiring how well they 
they replastered the ceiling after the angels came and, and took Washington away because that's what Mason Lock Weems said happened. He just immediately rose. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the Indians all shooting at Washington, 17 of them, and they couldn't hurt him. That's a Mason Lock Weems story. There's all sorts. Most of the stories that you hear about Washington are made up, and they're Mason Lock Weems. Sorry. <clears throat> I won't. I won't mention that there wasn't really a first Thanksgiving because then some of you really get upset. So I won't tell you that that was invented in the 1800s. Um, <clears throat> so what we're talking about here, and this is something that's, the reason it's important is, this is something that people take advantage of, either intentionally or unintentionally. Popular history. Popular history as opposed to real history. Popular history is history that people believe and they're taught to, to um, maybe as a, as a lesson to learn something, like the cherry tree story. It's supposed to teach you to tell the truth and so on and so forth. Um, but popular history, a lot of it is not true history. It's not really what happened. And so, sometimes it, it doesn't hurt anything and it's, it's a good moral to the story and whatnot. Okay, fine. But when you start basing things on it, that's when it becomes problematic. All right. <clears throat> Here's a Bishop White, the overseer of the churches that Washington has, uh, attended, said at his death, I do not believe that any degree of recollection will bring to my mind any fact which would prove General Washington to have been a believer in the Christian revelation. What did Reverend Samuel Miller, who was the the rector of one of the churches that he attended, say, how is it possible for a true Christian to die without one expression of distinctive belief or Christian hope? Now, these are guys who have nothing to gain by sullying the reputation of the great George Washington, right? In fact, they were criticized. Why should we believe that Washington was a Christian? What's the evidence for such an idea? Michael Novak wrote a book called Washington's God, and the whole purpose of the book is to prove Washington was a Christian. And he says in it, overpowering evidence for his commitment to a full-dress Christianity, whatever that means, is not to be found in the printed record. That he was a very good man in his moral life, stayed well within the bounds of Christian moral imperatives, and fulfilled a high measure of nearly all Christian virtues is testified to by many witnesses. This is his, what, he's, what he's saying here in a whole book he's writing about Washington being a Christian, and this is the best he can come up with. And then at the end he says this, and by the way, he's a Catholic, so full-dress Christianity, who knows what he means by that. Still, at the end, he says, the stated beliefs Washington lived by fell rather short of the full Christian creed. To confess the latter, to confess the full Christian creed, would have required very little of him, yet he evaded the many invitations offered him in public and in private to do so. So, one of the key issues in this whole thing is defining the terms, as I talked about before. What does it mean to be a Christian? So, this is from a book by a guy named John Eidsmo, very nice guy, wonderful guy. I had lunch with him not too long ago. He's a good guy. He says this. He's, he's about to introduce the founding fathers, and he says, the term Christian can be used in two contexts. First, it can describe someone who is born again, 
or saved or regenerate, a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ and his teachings. Who just talked about that for an hour, an hour ago, right? In other words, the biblical definition of a Christian, which is, of course, the right definition. But then he says, the term Christian is also loosely used to denote a person whose beliefs about God, the world, and man are generally in accord with those of the Christian religion, but who may not be a dedicated follower of Christ. And then he says, in the chapters that follow, this second definition will be the definition of Christianity and now the founding fathers. So he then does individual chapters of a bunch of founders to prove that second definition makes them a Christian. They were moral, good moral people. By their definition, they were Christians. He's adopting their definition. He's adopting the world's definition of Christian for this purpose. And I'm not saying he did in his own personal life. I think he's really a believer. But for, his, for this project, he's adopting the world's definition. In the second context, he says, a person's beliefs, actions, and or demeanor may be Christian, that is, decent, generous, moral. That's a Christian, decent, generous, moral. But he or she might not be regenerate. In the chapters which follow, the term is used primarily in this latter sense, and now the Founding Fathers. So if Christian means decent, generous, moral, then these guys were all Christians. Well, not all of them. Not Gouverneur Morris. But. So the key founders were, I'm arguing, the key founders were religious men, but not Christians. They were religious, but not Christians. They believed religion was extremely important, indeed critical, to the health of a free society, but not necessarily Christianity. They believed religion and morality were fundamental pillars of society, as George Washington says in his farewell address that I was just actually uh, analyzing this week for another purpose. Religion and morality were fundamental pillars of society, but that virtually any religion would serve the purpose. Here's the thing. They're creating a republican form of government, not a monarchy, not an iron fist from the top government, but a government of the people. And so how do you get people to behave? How do you get them to behave? How do you get them to live in peace with each other and society and whatnot if you don't have the iron fist holding them to morality? Morality. And how do you get morality? Religion. And so they believe, contrary to what the left says and what the courts say in America, who have this funky notion of a wall of separation between church and state, which the founders, by the way, you know, I tell my students, we could solve America's energy crisis by hooking up uh, nodes and electrodes to the graves of the founding fathers. You know how when some, you do something that someone wouldn't have liked that, that has died, they say, you say they turned over in their grave? The founders are spinning so fast, we could run turbines and, and, and power major cities. And this notion of a wall of separation between church and state, they would just be totally offended by that. They believe religion was critically important and needed to be part of the public square because it produces morality, not because it was Christianity and was going to make people Christians, but because it produces morality, and you have to have morality in a free society. 
So that's what was at stake for them. Now, I'd like to end on a, on a happy note. Of my eight people, I'm convinced one of them went to heaven. One of them had a deathbed confession of Christ. And what makes it even better is he's my favorite founding father, Alexander Hamilton. And he bears little resemblance to the guy that you know of from the play. So if, you, if you've seen the play or listened to it or whatever, first of all, he wasn't Hispanic. But aside from that... Um, it be, he bears a little resemblance, and by the way, Thomas Jefferson wasn't black. Um, bears a little resemblance of anything, but this is Hamilton when he was in power, when he was a theistic rationalist. Here's a, little, a couple of little tidbits. Talking about, okay, so they were going to hire a, um, a chaplain for the military, okay? So here's what Hamilton says about him. He is just what I should like for a military parson, except that he does not whore or drink. And then he said later, he will not insist upon your going to heaven, whether you will or not. So he liked this parson because he won't insist that you go to heaven. In other words, he, he, won't, he won't bother you about your religion. But he's not perfect because he doesn't go to whores and he doesn't drink. That's Hamilton, the theistic rationalist. He did not speak of Christ using God words such as supreme intelligence, omnipotence, benefactor. Those are the kinds of words that he used as a theistic rationalist. And he equated God with nature. He wrote a very famous, well, it's not a famous one, it should be. He wrote a well-known piece for the newspaper in which he equated God with nature. Which, by the way, was a fundamental notion that several of them had. Which is why you see Nature and nature's God in the Declaration of Independence. Not a biblical notion by any stretch. Um, All right, so what about Hamilton the Christian? So what happened was when Hamilton uh, was shot by Burr, and I don't have time to, well, I probably do, but um, so dueling at that time was illegal. And so the honorable men had come up with an, an alternative to shooting someone in a duel in which you would stand back to back, walk 10 paces, turn, and you would fire in the air and not shoot the other guy and, do, and break the law, which would be dishonorable, but you would be putting your own life in jeopardy behind your claim of honor, right? And so the other guy could go ahead and shoot you. So the honorable man, this was their thing. They would go, you know, and then that was it. They wouldn't shoot each other. And, in, and by this time, duels were very rare because it was always two weeks between a challenge and a duel. And during that time, the seconds of both parties would be working out a deal and they'd come to some type of agreement and they wouldn't actually duel. So Burr challenges Hamilton to a duel. The backstory is interesting, but we don't have time for it. And um, the, the two seconds go for all, all two weeks trying to settle it and Burr's not having it. No, we're fighting the duel. Hamilton... Has, has decided he's not going to shoot Burr. He's going to do the honorable thing. He's going to discharge his gun in the air. But he's also confident that he has correctly assessed Burr's character, which is that he has none, and therefore Burr will shoot him. So the night before the duel, he writes two very poignant letters to his wife saying, goodbye, honey, I'm going to die tomorrow. Take care of the kids. Here's where the keys to the car are. Here's my will, blah, 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 blah. Um, and um, have a good life. Because, but he also says that he's doing it for the scruples of a Christian. His own son was killed in a duel a year or two before this. 
and it had a profound effect on his life. He says so in his, in his journals. He began to reinvestigate Christianity after his son's death. And now the night before the duel, he says, the scruples of a Christian demand that I not shoot him. So the day of the duel comes, they go off the territory to an island, which didn't matter, but somehow they did that anyway. Uh, and they go to fire, and Hamilton fires first. And he raised his gun, and he fires up into the air, which is later proven, by the way, when the Burr people claim that Hamilton actually shot at Burr and missed him. They went up and dug the bullet out of the tree limb where it hit. Um, and then Burr points his gun up into the air and then lowers it and shoots Hamilton in the chest, which is immediately they know it's a mortal wound in those days, which means you can't do anything about it. He's going to die. So they carry Hamilton from the field to a local farmhouse, and he asks them to call a minister to give him communion before he dies. So they call a minister. The minister comes, and the minister says, I don't believe you're a Christian. I'm paraphrasing. I don't believe you're a Christian. I can't give you communion, and he leaves. I want to meet that guy in heaven, too. Um, Refuse communion to Alexander Hamilton on his deathbed. So they call another minister in, That minister says, I can't give you communion because my denomination will only do communion as a a group, no individual communion, only as a community. And so he leaves. So So Hamilton asks him to call the first guy back, and he proceeds to try and convince him that he's a believer. The guy writes the whole thing down and and submits it, and it's published in the newspapers, Hamilton's Deathbed Confession of Christ. And it's really quite amazing. It's really, really good. And um, here's some of it. He placed his hope for the next life in redeeming grace and divine mercy. He said, I am a sinner. I look to his mercy. I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Theistic rationalists didn't talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, The minister is convinced, and he gives him communion shortly before he dies. And as I said, the minister then published this uh, in the newspapers. But that gives you some, diff- some different language between a theistic rationalist from one of the, some of the things we saw earlier and what he says there. One of the keys in this whole issue is what did they mean, as I talked about before. Christian American advocates take the use of the words Christian or Christianity at face value and quote them to evangelical born-again Christians, despite the fact that the person being quoted meant something entirely different than what the audience understands by those terms. So this is intellectual dishonesty. Adams, Jefferson, Franklin, and others had their own definitions of Christianity, which rejected virtually all of the core doctrines of Christianity. And when they talked about Christianity, this is what they meant. What about the Declaration of Independence? It has generic God words, not biblical terms. The emphasis is on reason. Notice it's also on self-evident truths, not biblical truths or revealed truths, but self-evident truths from your own reason and from nature. I argue that Jefferson wrote the Declaration artfully, to appeal to rationalists and to the more conventionally religious. Think about it. Today, Christians claim that the Declaration is Christian. And deists claim 
or those who are rank secularists claim, no, 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 it's a rank secularist document. If you talk to a Jew, they will tell you, oh, yeah, it's fine. Jefferson was a smart guy. He wrote it with, with amorphous terminology that everybody can interpret their own way. And he counted on everybody to read their own religion into it, which is what everybody does. They read their own religion into it. So it's acceptable to the religious sensibilities of all. Why are people of all faiths and secularists equally comfortable with it? It's subject to varied interpretation. Christians read Christian content into it, and others read the other. But it's an honest expression of the political theology undergirding, undergirding the American experiment, which is theistic rationalism. It's an honest expression of theistic rationalist belief. What about the Constitution? It's been called godless, and that's correct. It is. There's no mention of God in the Constitution, much less anything specifically Christian. One guy says, uh, I jotted this down. One guy said, if the founders drafted the Constitution as a Christian document, then why conceal the fact by excluding any Christian language? He says, the Constitution contains not a hint of desire in bringing glory to God or to advance Christianity in the society. And that's, of course, true. There's little reference to God in the Constitutional Convention. If you read the Constitutional Convention notes, it's only three volumes of 500 pages each, so you should pick it up tomorrow and go through it. There's little reference to God in the Constitutional Convention, no reference to the Bible. Wait a minute. They based the Constitution on the Bible, but there's no mention of it at the Constitutional Convention when they're writing the Constitution. Interesting. Um, There's no quotations on any of the principles. Occasionally, they mentioned a Bible story um, in order to illustrate a point, but not as a basis of a principle. It was because everybody was familiar with the Bible because they grew up in a society in which everybody had a Bible. It was the only book that everybody knew. And so that's why they use biblical references and stories, just like you would use in Sunday school with flannel graphs, because it was a, a something in content. Uh, in common with everybody. There's no mention of the Bible in the Federalist Papers. 85 essays written to explain the, um, the principles and the ideas behind the Constitution. There's no mention of the Bible in it. God is mentioned twice in 85 essays of the Federalist Papers, and one of those is, is a mention of the pagan Greek god. God words are used five times in the Federalist Papers, but never regarding any principle or influence. In fact, I could probably quote from you, but I won't. James Madison's comment on the Bible uh, in the Federalist Papers. Um, They could afford to grant freedom of religion because they were indifferent toward particular sects or doctrines. So it's really, we talk about no establishment of religion in America. I argue that the Constitution is an establishment of religion. It's an establishment of theistic rationalism. It's a reflection of what they believed. Um, There's no religious test clause. There's a no religious test clause. Uh, If you were setting up a Christian government, it seems like you would have a religious test for office that someone be a Christian. States did. A lot of states had that type of requirement, but not the Constitution, because they didn't want that. 
this was easy for those with no firm doctrines to do. You just need good and moral men. There were other means of achieving that. What was the other means of achieving that? The oath of office. The oath of office was included as a religious element in the Constitution because if, when you took an oath back in those days, it meant something. It was important. And it meant that your God, whoever that was, would punish you if you broke the oath. And so that's why they included oaths of office. But it doesn't stipulate the God of the Bible or, or Christianity. It's whatever God you have. There's the Sunday's accepted phrase. Some make a lot out of this. When the, when the Congress submits bills to Congress, uh, the president has 10 days to deal with the bill or else it goes into effect. Sunday's accepted. So it's 10 work days, if you will. And so see, they were Christians, and so they wanted to not do business on Sundays. All this is is a recognition that most people didn't conduct business on Sundays then. It doesn't mean that they're making any kind of statement. And you can go through... The ratification debates in all 13 states, and they never, make any, they never make any comment in terms of that because they all understand what this means. There's no indication of any significant meaning. And then some people say, well, the Constitution does mention God because it says in the year of our Lord when, when, when they're signing it. <laughs> that was just the common means of identifying the year at that time. And pagan nations... Uh, and Catholic nations and all sorts of people would put the year in the year of our Lord because that was like putting A.D. or, or um, uh, B.C. or something. It's just a way of identifying the year. There's no indication of any significant meaning. Go through all the ratification notes. They never say, oh, look, we're mentioning God and that this is important. It's just a way of identifying the year. Why is the Christian idea, America idea popular? First of all, those who promote it are not historians. I don't know of a single historian who, is a, who believes in the Christian America notion. And I know a lot of the Christian historians. <clears throat> there are some who are self-proclaimed historians. The most prominent one, the guru of them, has a bachelor's degree in Christian education from Oral Roberts University. They're self-proclaimed historians who are making a huge profit. That particular guy has been given all kinds of original documents and stuff. He probably has a vault in his house for all. He's he's got millions and millions, and and he's sold millions of books and millions of videotapes and millions of this, that, and the other. And he speaks all over creation and whatnot. Made a lot of money. Um, Others who promote it are lawyers. Some of them are lawyers. What's the, what's the job of a lawyer? Is it to, to seek out the truth and present both sides equally? When someone hires you as a lawyer, your job is to present one side and win. And that's the way the lawyers who do this, that's, if you read their stuff, that's what it is. It's, it's choosing, picking, and choosing uh, to present one side to try and win the argument. And then there are pastors who just trust the other people. The pastors don't have time to do their own historical study, so they trust other people, to, and they just go to these sources to find information. And so I don't blame the pastors because they just don't know better. Um, also, there's something in human nature that wants us to believe that our nation is specially blessed by God. Think about it. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, it was for their God emperor, when the Romans, the Romans eventually cut out the middleman and made their emperors gods. Um, and so when you have a great civilization, 
you naturally want to believe that you're specially blessed by God. And so it's easy for Americans to think we have, I would argue, the greatest country in the history of the world. So we must have been specially blessed by God. And I think we were especially blessed by God, despite a whole lot of other things. You know, people, people sometimes link your righteousness with how long God lets you live or whatever. People ask me, how long do you think America has, and so on and so forth. I have no idea, because the Spartans had maybe the most disgusting society in the history of the world, and they lasted 800 years. God has his own plan. Nations rise and fall. He told Nebuchadnezzar, it'll be you, your son, and your grandson, and then another country will come, and that's exactly what happened. And God has a plan, and nations rise and fall, and because a nation rises doesn't necessarily mean that they're godly. God rose up the Assyrians to punish Israel, and they were just as bad or worse than Israel. So, but there's something in human nature that wants us to think that we're blessed by God. And it's easier to call people back to a heritage than to call them to something new and radical like biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is pretty darn radical. But if you can convince people that you were somewhere before and we just need to go back to when everything was wonderful, it's easier to make that argument. And then fundamentally, it's frustration with public school history teaching. You know, I always, I always view it as sort of a tug of war. You know, when you do a tug of war, there's a rag in the middle, right? And, and you have to try and pull it and get the rag to your side. And so what, the way a lot of people view this is the public schools have been pulling to the left, you know, in this tug of war, and the rag's over here. So to get it over here, we need to go and get something crazy to the right and pull it that way to get it back to the middle. And as a history teacher, I say, no, let's just teach the middle. <laughs> let's just teach where the rag should be. And don't teach something equally bad to try and get the rag to where it should be. That's just my opinion. Creating quotes. On page 120 of the Myths of Separation by David Barton, the guy I was talking about a minute ago, James Madison is quoted as saying this, religion, dot, 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 is the basis and foundation of government. Here's what the actual what Madison actually said. Because finally, the equal right of every citizen to the free exercise of his religion, according to the dictates of conscience, is held by the same tenure with all his other rights. If we recur to its origin, it's equally the gift of nature. If we weigh its importance, it cannot be less dear to us. If we consider the declaration of those rights which pertain to the good people of Virginia as the basis and foundation of government, it is enumerated with equal solemnity or rather studied emphasis. Quotes out of context. John Adams said, the general principles on which the the founding fathers achieved independence were dot, 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 the general principles of Christianity. Here's what Adams actually said. In the actual quote, Adams listed the types of men who brought about independence, including Roman Catholics, Universalists, Arians, Sassinians, Deists, and Atheists, and Protestants who believe nothing. You know what an Arian is? They believe that God created Jesus as a higher being. He's not God. He's somewhere between us and, and God. Sassinians just believe Jesus was a man. 
deists, atheists, and Protestants who believe nothing. He's talking about them. And then he says, the general principles on which the the fathers achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young men could unite. So it's the principles that all those people would agree on. Atheists, Arians, deists, etc., and Protestants who believe nothing. And what are these general principles? I answer, the general principles of Christianity, in which all those sects were united. What principles of Christianity are all those sects, sects united in? Deists, atheists, Protestants who believe nothing. Just morals, morality. Then he follows, he went on to claim that he could fill sheets of quotations in favor of these principles with statements from a number of well-known sources, including two very notorious atheists, David Hume and Voltaire. Um, I've got to do this. I'm sorry. We can do questions next week. <clears throat> letter from Adams to Benjamin Rush. A portion of the 1809 letter is read by some of these people in which Adam says glowing things, a portion of the letter is read, in which Adam says glowing things about the Holy Spirit, concluding with, there is no authority, civil or religious, there can be no legitimate government but what is administered by this Holy Ghost. Well, that sounds good, huh? Adams is really affirming the Holy Spirit, and it needs to be involved in government and whatnot. But this is snatched out of... Right after the rapturous statements about the Holy Spirit, Adam says, although this is all artifice and cunning, yet they all believe it so sincerely that they would lay down their lives under the axe or the fiery faggot for it. Alas, poor, weak, ignorant, dupe human nature. And then he says, do you wonder that Voltaire and Paine, notorious infidels, have made proselytes? And then he asks Rush to burn the letter. So he's saying that these are things that are said by these poor, ignorant dupes who believe in the Holy Spirit. And by the way, asking him to burn the letter was a common thing. James, uh, Jefferson often, uh, if people died, he would go to their widows and get his letters back from them because they didn't want people to know what they actually believed, didn't want it to get out publicly. Um, All right, I'm going to skip this because this stuff is going to be next week, some of it. And I need to get to, here we go. Oh, shoot. Can you bring it up and go to the very last slide? Because you're so talented. Great. All right, to read more, you can get my book. It's on Amazon, whatever. Um, I'm not here to sell books, by the way. Um, Or... Homeschoolers, I've often been asked by homeschool parents, what do we do, what do we do, you know, and, and I can never tell them anything, but now I can. Uh, BJU Press came to me and asked me to be the content editor for their American history textbook for, uh, I think it's 11th grade. And so for a whole year, they would send me chapters, and I would um, edit the content of them. So I can recommend their American history book uh, called The American Republic. For, uh, for anybody who's interested. And then also another book, The Search for Christian America, which the OP means it's out of print, but you can find it on used book sites. It's really good as well. All right. We've got 30 seconds for questions. <laughs> so next week...
I wouldn't go to the high academic Catholic school, um, but you have to make your own decision. We decided, each, three, each of our three girls, we decided individually based on them. One of our girls went to public school in high school because she wanted, to, she wanted to share her faith and we thought she was firm in it and that was fine. The other two, we didn't let go. We homeschooled them all the way through because they weren't, one of them was a follower and the other one, anyway. So it, you have to make a determination. Um, next week, if, if you want to come back, um, we're going to look at the evidence that is given by the Christian America people, uh, the evidence for a Christian America, and we're going to evaluate that evidence, uh, and I'm going to suggest to you some flaws in it, uh, some of which I've already talked about today. But anyway, uh, thanks for your attention, and thanks for not throwing anything yet. <laughs>